You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. I'm Aprom Kipolevich. Tonight, we're here with four guests. Rabbi Yitzchak is going to join us. Rabbi Zakolakowski will be joining us a little bit later. But we have four guests that are here with us. We have two gentlemen, Chris and David, who have been incarcerated. And their experience and what they've done after, since their release, makes them eminently qualified to comment not only on the system that betrayed them in some ways, the system that perhaps dealt with them somewhat unfairly, but also they have thought long and hard about options that could perhaps change things. We also have with us retired police captain Dan Sosnovic, who uh, has also been involved in the leadership training of police cadets, and retired defense attorney Gershon Sternberg. One of the things that all of us on this program agree is that to just speculate, to dream about solutions, to dream about a different world, um, although it is something that perhaps an all-night bull session might be something you can do, but in terms of actually changing people's minds, especially when you know there's going to be pushback, there's really it's really not effective. We've seen in the uh, arguments for climate change that it's been these smaller steps that have been able to insert themselves into society, and now we can see that People are worried about the idea of their carbon footprint. There are incentives for electric cars. And of course, electric cars themselves have gotten better. And it seems like within a number of years, electric cars might be standard. And uh, emissions from carbon-based products will clearly go down. We've seen change in terms of the way the society at large reacts to <coughs> people who are uh, uh, who are gay and lesbian, trans, and we've seen that those changes have occurred. And it happened because legislation and other things were able to be accepted and society moved towards it. Education is crucial, but also the suggestions that we make need to be measured. And we're going to try to deal with that tonight. We're going to try to talk about zeroing in on problems and also suggest some possibilities, some options that can actually be effective. Things that not only can be effective, but also things that would probably seem to be within our grasp. Perhaps not tomorrow or in this uh, election cycle, but within a few years, we would be able to see those types of change for the betterment, not only incarcerated persons, but of society in general. We'll start tonight with David. David is on somewhat of a, uh, a schedule where he uh, can't stay with us that long. If David, if you could begin to describe a little bit of what you think might be um, one of the key issues that has been overlooked in the past and something that we could perhaps address ourselves to in terms of bettering the system. Is, is one of the, I think, primary mistakes many of us make when we're first uh, beginning uh, following indictment is is, um, is that we often want to think anyway that our case is different than others. And in that way, we think that it makes good sense oftentimes to hire uh, and retain private counsel, which comes oftentimes at a great expense, where the family, where our family, in my case, my family, uh, was going through difficult financial times. And so to then take uh, those dollars and apply them to private attorneys, and now I'm speaking, by the way, in my particular case, to the federal system. Chris or others may want to speak to the differences in the state system, but in the federal system, because such a great percentage of people ultimately plead guilty, don't go to trial, and those few who do go to trial, the percentage of victory is so slim, and I'm talking about in the single digits at best, it behooves us, in my view, to take a hard look. And I was advised at this and ignored it by an inmate who I was introduced to who had just been released 
who urged me not to retain private counsel, is to give serious thought and move in the direction of retaining a public defender, uh, both w- wisely for the family as well as for yourself, if, if the idea is to plead guilty. So that's the mistake I made. I put substantial funds into private counsel retention, and ultimately the attorney, who as many of the attorneys do, begin with great gusto. We're going to go to trial. We're going to win this case. You know, my view is, is the, and I, and by the way, I was a practicing attorney for almost 20 years up until then, but never did any criminal work. I bought into that as well. We all in the beginning want to think our case is different to a certain extent and want to remain optimistic, but it's, it's really not wise. That's the first thing I want to say. So I wanted to make that comment that uh, on balance, I think, and in almost in every instance, I think it makes great sense to be seriously considering a public defender, particularly where the conclusion is early that you could not you cannot reasonably expect to win a trial. That's the first point. The second point, uh, uh, David, I'm sorry for interrupting. Uh, you're greatly damaged if you go to trial and lose uh, because and, you lose what's called acceptance of responsibility. And, and because these federal sentencing guidelines are advisory, not mandatory, the judge does view you very dimly. If you if, if, sadly, if you elect to go to, I say sadly, because it's your constitutional right, of course, of all citizens to choose to go to trial. But as a practical matter, you'll be prejudiced at sentencing if you choose to and lose, which are almost guaranteed to do these days. So and not only these days for the last, you know, and David, now David, I had the impression from our previous conversations that there was something even more insidious in your case, which was that even in the dealings between the prosecutor and your lawyer, you got the message that your plea would result in a very light sentence, correct? Or a lighter sentence than you received? Well, that no, no, no. I, I Just to clarify, that was the, it wasn't based on anything the prosecutor said. My attorney's belief was that I would be sentenced to no more than 10 years. And my attorney put very little credence in the pre-sentence investigation report conclusion that my sentencing guidelines were 17 to 22 and a half years, which was a great overstatement. But the fact is, is, and I learned as I was doing a lot of criminal work in prison for 11 years, is that the fact of the matter is pre-sentence reports are not ignored by many judges and in fact are impactful upon a judge's decision. And, you know, ultimately I received a 14-year sentence on a plea. Now, the truth was, was one could say that I actually got a break given the pre-sentence investigation calculation, but we can we can go on for hours about the sentencing guidelines. I actually wanted to make one comment along those lines, maybe not at the moment, unless you would like me to speak to it now. You and I spoke about this briefly, and that right. is the, the lack of personalization in the application right. of the sentencing guidelines. Right. And I think Chris is going to, we're going to talk about that with Chris as well when we talk about uh, Chris's uh, suggestion. Um, well, and the three strikes idea, right? right. That, that ties into that as well. Right. So we will be definitely be talking about that. Um, uh, so I guess we can already put your suggestion on the table. Your... I think what it's going to take is, is a part of a very proactive prison reform effort. People like me and others have to make a, a much greater effort to galvanize the position and, uh, you know, be out there communicating it okay. to 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 the public. I mean, it's got to be a much more concerted effort to get this message across. But no, no, I don't see that as being a, a practical solution, okay. being able to legalize or, you know, uh, mandate the, uh, you know, the, the retention of public defense. That's never going to happen. That's uh-huh. not possible. Right. And, and that might be counterproductive, too. But I know that in the um, in the mortuary business, for example, there are uh, guidelines about uh, that they aren't able to charge a certain amount. There's a certain way that the government has, I, I know, uh, affected uh, because clearly people who are desperate, as you say, are willing to give away everything for their defense. Maybe there is some way to to put some limits on what they can charge and what they can demand and what the retainers should be. Um, Gershon, um, this was your bread and butter for a while. Do you, is, is there any possibility of this changing at all? We have, we have uh, uh, Gershon, who was a criminal defense lawyer. I think David is right. If, you, know, you have a Sixth Amendment right to counsel and to eliminate uh, counsel of your choice. I, 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 can't, I cannot see that happening. 
I'll, I'll say this. When I was practicing, uh, I'm going to be a little, tra- I'm going to be transparent here. I'm going to tell you that the idea of making a living from what I was doing, I found very frustrating. Uh, I, I felt that in a sense I was selling justice, uh, which really was contrary to my conscience, if you will. But when you have to make a living, you have to make a living, and that's that. Um, and, and I even thought to myself, uh, wouldn't it be interesting if instead of there being private attorneys, uh, maybe if it was socialized and, and, and the defense bar was, was totally funded by uh, taxpayer funds, of course, you have a problem there because, <clears throat> I mean, that's not going to fly. I know that. But it would really be nice if the defense lawyer didn't have to concern himself with collecting money from the client or the family of the client who's fighting for his life or, or his freedom. Uh, those were just my feelings when I was practicing. Many times I, I actually thought to myself that I might have even been happier had I been in the public defender's office, then, then it wouldn't be a business. Then all I would have to concern myself with is the case, period. But it is what it is. Is it going to change? I don't see how. I really don't see how. Uh, I, I want to comment on, on one comment that David made when he said you can't win a trial. And I think in the federal system, if I remember correctly, the, the if the government wins, uh, I can't remember if it's 80 or 93% of the cases. Uh, I'm confused with statistics because one of those is the percentage of cases that bleed out. Um, when the feds have you, they, they've got you. But in, in the state, in Illinois, I can tell you uh, I won a lot of cases. And, and I'm not bragging about me. What I'm saying is you can win in the state court. You put up a good fight, you can win. And I've seen plenty of other lawyers do the same. You can lose too. But I think, uh, I don't know, I, I always felt that with a jury in Cook County, my clients had a pretty fair chance. Very, um, very different also, story in the uh, in the, the state system. There's no question. I, 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 I understand that. Uh, one difference between, of course, my experience is basically I have experience in the Northern District of Illinois, and I have lots of experience in the Circuit Court of Cook County. And I could tell you that in the federal system, when they take a plea, it is slow and methodical, and the judges bend over backwards to make sure that the defendant knows what he's doing and that that plea is locked up and can't be overturned on an appeal or post-conviction uh, uh, matter. In the state court, it's like a factory. Um, so, it, goes, it goes quickly. Well, uh, uh, David talked about the word betrayal, and I think that that is something that really has to be pointed out. How many times have we read in the newspapers or heard on TV how somebody who had been locked up for 30 or 40 years was released because they found that the prosecutor's file or the, the investigating uh, police officer's file had uh, exculpatory evidence, which was withheld. And you talk about your trail, look at, you may not like the results that came about in Bill Crosby's case, but the prosecutor betrayed him. He made a deal. And he gave up his Fifth Amendment right to, make, to uh, remain silent in exchange for immunity. And the succeeding prosecutor totally backed out of that and used his statements at trial. Uh, and that's why his conviction was, re- was reversed. That is a, there is a lot of betrayal yes. that just gets buried. Right. And, uh, you know... So actually, actually, um, uh, Gershon, I wanted to actually bring Chris in because I think Chris does have another story of betrayal and a suggestion, a personal story of betrayal to himself. Chris, 
Uh, thanks for holding on so uh, patiently. Go ahead. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, first, everybody's talked. Thank you. I love your ideas. And I think what I'm going to say is going to support a lot of them. Uh, since I haven't been on the show before, I'm actually going to do a little different than David. I'm actually going to quickly give you the abridged story of how I ended up in prison and exactly where I kind of got the bad end of it, not necessarily betrayal, but I'm going to pick up how David said betrayal. And now that's burnt into my head. That's why I'm telling the story because the betrayal of us as felons, convicts, all these language games to further stigmatize us is one of the huge problems. Anyway, my story. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Miner. I'm coming to you from rainy Chicago, Illinois. Um, 2005, I've been working in the restaurant industry for about 10 years. Uh, for those who haven't been in that industry, there's a lot of drugs tied to that, a lot of marijuana to get through the depression and the day-to-day -day stuff. And like many of my coworkers and friends, that escalated from a marijuana problem to a cocaine problem. Uh, the cocaine problem escalated to an embezzling money problem. Um, and finally, it caught up with me after, I won't say how much, but quite a bit. Um, when my employer came to me, I immediately admitted, I mean, I was a drug addict. I needed help. I wasn't fighting nothing. I'm, I'm powerless. We worked stuff out. You know, he, he called the police. He had to. I have no problem with that. Um, somehow, despite, you know, more than $10,000, you know, admitting to it, I was a class C or a class X felony. What's weird is I don't even remember because I blacked half of that out. But I didn't get sentenced to prison. I got sentenced to two and a half years intense probation. Now, during the course of this intense probation, I was paying restitution. I sure as heck was not using cocaine. I was keeping a job. I was keeping a place to live. But I was flunking every single drug test for marijuana. Of course, that's on me. But I was told each week, I mean, two full years of this, it's okay. You're, you're making progress. You're getting better. After two of the two and a half year intense probation mandate, they revoked me. Um, once again, I don't see it as betrayal. I broke the, the, I broke the, you know, what I was supposed to be doing, but there was a deal made, or so I thought it was a deal with the public defender and the state's attorney. Uh, the state's attorney had agreed to sentence me to one year in prison. Um, he goes, since you don't seem to want to smoke, you don't seem to want to quit smoking, it won't be an issue if you go to prison afterwards. On top of that, you won't have to pay restitution. I'm like, wait, um, let's talk. Um, I can take a deal like that. How much prison time are we talking? He said one year. Um, whoa, a year in prison. Um, this is real. Um, then he goes, wait, but you're only going to serve 61 days. In Illinois, there's a lot of issues with how it, generally when you're sentenced, that time is cut in half and they knock six months off for good time. With a year, they can't do that. So it's called a 61-day turnaround. They send you, you know, the county, then they suit you up, send you off to prison. You come back, it's over. I showed up for court that day. I had had to be transparent with my new job, who was going to keep me employed, and as well as the place I stayed. And the judge overruled and said that he was going to sentence me to three years in the Department of Corrections. That was a shock. Um, of course, my public defender, you know, she just shook her head and says, well, it's only, it's only a year you're actually going to serve. I'm like, I'm going to prison right now for a year. Yeah. Okay. I built my bag, I'll lay in it. I think that was kind of a screw job, but hey, it happens. The judge has a discretion, and oddly enough, I'm about to argue to give judges more discretion. So anyway, I went to prison, and there is no treatment plan for short-term, short-timers. That's what I was considered, only serving a year in prison. No programs were accessible to me other than school, where I could take horticulture or some haircutting thing, even though you can't get a cosmetology license in Illinois. Anyway, I served my year upon my release, Chris, let me just interrupt you for a second. You, 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 in other words, you feel that at least when you were in that year, you should have been getting some, um, uh, some therapy, right, for yes, your, for your addiction. Of, yes, some sort of rehabilitation, something to guarantee that if I truly was some sort of menace to society, I don't feel I was, but I had stolen money. Well, at least don't put me back out there with the same skill set that put me in that position. Yes, I can internalize and I can take the blame because I victimized somebody. But hey, what is the point of this? Are you just grounding me? And that's exactly what it was. Uh, so, so, Chris, let me just stop you here for a second. Yeah. Um, so, you think you would need you you, you needed some you needed uh, therapy or intervention because of your drug problem, or because of or or, or because of the theft, or, or both? Both. Um, the theft was directly related to the drug addiction, um, and I guess they you know I guess I was incapacitated. 
Um, despite what some people might say in Illinois prisons, there's not drugs. And if there was, there were nowhere for me to see. But I, maybe they thought that, hey, we're just going to take him out of the environment for a year and he'll fix himself. You know, I could have done better on myself. But anyway, um, I was turned from prison the first five years. I went back to work at the same place. Yeah, oddly enough, they rehired me. Um, same people, places, things, same drugs, not so much cocaine, but all the other stuff. And it's all bad. It all adds up and influences you. And after about five years of that, I just decided that I was a loser. And on a spur of the moment, I applied for college at Parkland College in Champaign. Two years later, I had my associate's degree in political science. Two years later, I had my bachelor's degree in urban and regional planning. Three years later, I had my master's in social work. And now I'm here um, at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm a PhD student, and I teach criminology, law, and justice as a TA. I do a lot of activism work. I have my own nonprofit where I help people with felony convictions get into school. Now, anything else you want to ask me before I get into my suggestion? Yeah, I, I guess I, th- I think people would be interested, Chris. I mean, first of all, the restitution. Restitu- we, we talked here in a previous episode how... Uh, after you're released that uh, some of your wages are sequestered or, or I, I, I forgot what the proper word is, um, but your wages are garnished in order to pay back. Uh, so that did occur, right? You did pay back what it was you embezzled, correct? No, the wages were never garnished. I've actually spoken with my former employee. He said that he had an insurance check to get his money back before I even went to prison. He didn't show up for that court date. But no, during the uh, two years of intense probation, I paid off about 5,000, which still left me quite a bit in the hole. Um, If I go to the circuit clerk's site right now, it says that I owe 2,200. I've called about that. They said it just hasn't come out of the system. Now, this is something I should probably know know more about with the field I'm working in, but I don't. But yes, it basically has disappeared. But it does concern me that it still shows up on a circuit clerk's website like something they can hold over my head. Mm -hmm. Now, since this, I've had plenty of interactions with police, none of them leading to arrest or anything like that. Just general checking ID, which kind of now used to scare me. Now it feels reassuring, like, I'm clean, take the ID. Am I clean? They give you a clean. I'm like, thank you. But um, yes, that is an odd situation. I understand you're looking kind of puzzled about it. Yeah. And, and what would you say about the, the, you know, your, I guess you were an addict, right? You were definitely, have you kicked that completely? Yes. And that has a lot to do. That's a whole separate show, but it has a lot to do with hope. Um, what it is, is once I got back in school, I started feeling a part of the in-group instead of the being, having to feel like an eviction makes you a permanent second-class citizen. It limits your access to housing, employment, and education, and that's not how it's supposed to be. Me and many of us, including myself, we paid our time for our crime. It should be over, but the process is the punishment. I okay. mean, you're allowed to discriminate against people with felony convictions. We're the only class of people you're allowed to do that to. All right, we've talked and, and we and we've talked about reentry. We talked about those changes, Chris. Why don't you uh, uh, put on the table the, uh, the 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 suggestion you think that can happen? My biggest one would be legislation that actually eliminates um, the triumvirate of Bill Clinton's mistakes for criminal injustice reform. I would like to do away with mandatory minimums, three strikes, you're out, and truth and sense. Now, my reason for this is twofold. First of all, these are ridiculously long prison sentences. The longer you're in prison, the less successful your reentry is probably going to be. And it also, despite the fact that I kind of think I got shafted a little by my judge, I think the judges should have more power in sentencing so they can give second chances. They can take circumstances and situations into consideration instead of saying, I have to send you away for this amount of time for this. You have to serve your full sentence. It also eliminates the chances that judges can give alternative sentences. You know, if three strikes are out, it's your third felony, then you don't have a chance to be sentenced to restorative justice. Maybe the victim of your crime doesn't want you to go to prison. They just want an apology and to feel safe. I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth. Maybe people won't feel that way. But when you take that power away from the judge, why don't we just have a computer spit out the sentence? You know, and, and once again, that might sound odd from someone who just told a story about how a judge's discretion led me to a little, little longer of a sentence than I thought I was going to get. I still hold that this is something that I think could happen in the next couple of days. I have many other suggestions, but the show's only okay. so long. So- given by the court. And I'll tell you, if you're in a courtroom in, in Cook County where they have uh, every day, there may be 
I don't know, 50, 75 cases on the call. Uh, how much personal attention can the judge give realistically? Uh, they want to get rid of these cases. They just want to move them on. Uh, okay, Dan. Um... You know, uh, Dan uh, Sosnovic, who's uh, Sosnovic, who's the uh, a retired police captain from the New York uh, NYPD. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the three strikes rule. Um, do you think uh, Chris is right that we need to reconsider it and 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 come up with some way to um, to either get you know to alter it or to 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 push judges to uh, to to be to be more considerate, Dan? Um, I, my, my immediate impression is that I, I, I don't have any problem with that. I think that, in other words, there is a certain, a certain arbitrariness that I'm hearing from the stories that have been told in this hour. Uh, there's a certain arbitrariness to the idea that why is it three strikes when you're dealing with a human life and, you know, you're dealing with perhaps a complicated social issue that, you know, is, 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 you know, is landing a person back in the, on the wrong side of the law a number of times, yes. But I mean, I don't know why we should establish an arbitrary three strikes. I mean, one thing that, I, I mean, there's two things that I just would also just say as, as someone who's just listening to what the other panelists have said, is that it sounds like we have a lawyer problem here. Because, you know, one of your guests, David, he mentioned that, you know, perhaps we should be considering public defenders but then Chris's public defender looks to me like didn't really do it such a good job for him. So, you know, and then, you know, and my position is that unfortunately the law, uh, the judges are all lawyers. So, I mean, this is all really the club and I, I do have a problem. I, I mean, I agree with, I agree with everyone that, you know, it seems like part of the problem is that it's all being run by people in the law profession. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I also don't know what the answer is in terms of three strikes. Like I said, I said, I agree with it. I will say this, my hat is off to Chris for, you know, obviously turning his life completely around. And, you know, that's really what we would want to see out of, you know, the vast, vast majority of, of individuals that run afoul of the law. We'd want to see a life lived like Chris's. How to get there, I'm not sure. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think that, you know, one of the questions that certainly from my law enforcement perspective is that which comes first? Are we putting the chicken before the horse? Are we, are we putting the cart before the horse rather? In other words, we have crime and we have the people that we catch committing the crime. So which should we deal with first or which should we deal with next? And how do we address that? So, I mean, that seems to be part of the problem. And then when you look at what's happened in New York over the last couple of years, um, you know, we decided to we decided to open up some of the bail restrictions. And now we have a bunch of recidivists and we have law. We have uh, crime that has really skyrocketed in the city. So, you know, this is a thorny question. I, I but I, I certainly hear you know, your panelists perspective on it. And I, I can't disagree with it necessarily, because I think that there is a there, you know, as someone else mentioned, the, the human side of this has been completely stripped away. This is all a numbers game, which I think is terrible. I mean, I as a, as a law enforcement professional, I think that's terrible. I mean, I think that, you know, people are entitled to their day in court. I'll be the first one to say that I'm only I'm only the person that is bringing them to the court. I only have a certain level of proof. They still have to have their case proven before a jury of their peers. And, you know, they're, they're entitled to that. So if we have a system that is not allowing for that, I think that is, that is truly an outrage. I think that it needs to be fixed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so one of the things... Uh, when you thought you were only going to get a year... That would have been on an on an admission to the violation, correct? Yes, I confess before okay. I was sentenced to the two and a half years probation. So there was just oh, a recent. Okay. Oh, oh, and I'm talking about the three years that you got. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, all right. Yeah. Um, 
I'm wondering if your public defender may have been under the impression that you were only going to, uh, that you weren't going to get uh, three years uh, because there was an agreement with the state, which the judge did not approve. In other words, the PD may, may well have thought that that's what you were going to get and thought that in good faith, but the judge just ignored both sides and said, no, this is what I'm going to give you. That's possible. But my biggest, wanted... Oh, yeah, no, no, that's definitely possible. And I'll address it. But what the way I look at it is those people all go across the street and eat at the diner together. They're all at the same courthouse all day and long. That's their little group. Absolutely. Here it is. I think me as somebody who's committed a crime and even police officers, neither of us are really part of that group. That's the group that really gets to penalize and gets to do the punitive stuff. Now, I want, um, do I have time to respond to one other thing Gary said earlier? There's the complaint that the criminal justice system is really just a factory uh, processing plea agreements. Well, there's a reason that, that people plead guilty. There are a number of reasons. And it's, you're, you're between a rock and a hard place. And in a sense, you put yourself there. You want to go to trial? Fine, we'll go to trial. Uh, you want to take a plea? Take a plea. Nobody's putting a gun to your head, but you have to understand you may wind up getting a, a worse, uh, a, a heavier sentence uh, if you're found guilty after trial than otherwise. You know, the, I'm not trying to justify it. I'm trying to look at it in a practical way. It's a hard system, and perhaps it, it, to an extent, the conflict that the defendant is put, the position of conflict that he's put into when making the decision whether to plead guilty or not, really to an extent, it's just a fact of life. It is what it is. And he put himself there. And I don't know how that can be softened unless you guarantee the defendant that he's not going to do any worse. But that's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to throw in and, you know, I hate to say this, but I mean, the statement that you put yourself there sounds like it's a presumption of guilt. And that's not really no. the way our system no. works. No. no, 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 no. If you're negotiating a plea agreement, if you're negotiating, first of all, you, your, your, uh, your admission and your plea of guilty will not be, and you should know this, will not be accepted unless the judge is convinced that it's freely and voluntarily made and that you are in fact guilty. If there's a doubt in the judge's mind that you're guilty, well, of course it depends on the judge and how busy he is. Theoretically, if there's a doubt that you're in fact guilty, if there's a doubt, uh, I, I can tell you, I have a case in federal court in Chicago where the judge was questioning whether the defendant really was guilty and he wouldn't accept the plea. And the defendant wanted to plead. And the government was offering an agreement that the defendant wanted to take. The judge would not accept the plea, and he forced him to trial. And I, he really didn't come I, out any worse than he was at any point. So I've had that happen to me with even with, with traffic cases. Oh, no, so Rabbi, 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 Kola, Rabbi Kolakowski is here. Yes, yeah, go I'm ahead. At the, I'm at the Wayne County. I'm at the Wayne County Fair, but I, I figured I'd pop in. I, I, I was, at, I had a traffic case just personally. I remember, and I was accused of speeding. Let's say at 80, and I admitted. I said, no, I, I know I was going maybe 70, I, but I wasn't going 80. And the judge would not accept a plea bargain. Even though it was offered, they said we we I cannot accept a plea if you if you uh, you know dispute the facts of the case. So it, it's it's a hundred percent true with with what you're saying here. You, they they're not allowed to accept a plea if 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 you don't agree that you're guilty. Because even even though like they're saying that you know in, in New York when you have a speeding ticket, they'll offer you a plea of a parking ticket so you don't get points. And I said, well, I'm pleading guilty to parking tickets. No, you're pleading guilty to speeding at 80 miles an hour and if you didn't really do it we cannot accept the plea so and then i and and based on that they actually dismissed the case once you know that i i mean again that's a minor thing we're talking about a traffic tickets but still is 
you know, it, it, it goes along the same. The rules are the same. Um, well, can, can I just suggest something here? Thank you. So whether it's universal or not, I, it, it is built on a certain logic. The logic, of course, is that people do not, the, 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 the justice system is overcrowded. There isn't a lot of time, as, 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 as Gershon has said and others, to investigate each case. There is something to a pattern that one can assume, right? We have a similar law, of course, in the Torah when we talk about a person who doesn't watch his uh, ox and his ox gores uh, more, uh, more than twice or three times. Of course, a human being is not an ox. Still, there is a logic to it. What I, what I would say, Chris, in response to you, instead of shelving this completely, what we could do is perhaps differentiate between the types of crimes that happened three times. If we're talking about, uh, Dan, you spoke about it the other day, uh, a violent break-in into a, into a home. Well, the third time that break-in happens, it's, it's hard to start saying, well, this person is, you know, it's because of a unique situation here. Uh, I think things are different are if it's- Are you saying that that's defendant is ignored? What I'm saying is, is that depending on what the third strike is, depending on what game you're playing, depending on what the, the, the sin was, sometimes the fact that it keeps on happening does mean something and does call for stricter sentencing. But I think we need to figure out which we have to sort of parse the different felonies. And, and we have to sort of say, when it comes to certain types of things that are violent, certain types of things that, are, that, 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 that have violent trespass, those things are different than, let's say, a, a drug offense, or maybe even, I, I don't know if in terms of, uh, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you, could, you guys know felonies better than I do, but I would assume that we could, we, we could somehow figure out which felonies need to be considered on a case-to-case -case basis and which ones we should, we should recognize that we have someone here who, whose pattern shows a, 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 a tendency to something that can destroy the community. Chris, let me just jump in for a second. I see your hand. Um, Rabbi, just so you know, um, what you described, Avramel, is actually uh, the judge's power, discretionary by itself. Yeah, if you keep coming back with the same offense, you're going to get progressive sentences progressively harder. Uh, no matter what, that third sentence shouldn't be life, regardless, unless it is, you know, something really dramatic, such as taking a life. Even then, I don't think you should die in prison, but that's a discussion for another day. So I don't. I want to give the judge the ability to, instead of just having to say, this is your third felony, you're going away forever, to say, okay, you've done two really bad things. You've been to prison twice. This is your third strike. There are a lot of circumstances here. This wasn't as bad, but this was still was a felony. There was still a gun involved. Nobody died, but this is a big deal. So you're going to get a big sentence, but you're not getting sentenced to life. This so, is the judge of that power. So yeah, the judge already has the power you've described. Right, but can we perhaps distinguish between... Uh, and and most criminal procedure is a offense that is going to garner more jail time. That's what essentially a felony means. So in other words, you know, you've committed a felony and you're entitled to be sentenced under the procedure law to, I don't know, let's say three to five. And the judge gives you a low end because it's your first offense and whatever else. And then the second time, He's going to be absolutely aware that there is a second offense, and he's going to be absolutely aware that there's a third offense. So, I mean, I'm actually, I'm seeing Chris's point very well, that it's like, I don't know, what is magic about three? And why, why should that mean, you know, that is the end? I don't know why that necessarily follows. I mean, of course, again, from the law enforcement perspective, and you sort of brushed over this, Rabbi, but it's like, let me ask you. What is what? Why does Clinton have these regrets? Because ultimately, again, crime did go down significantly. So, I mean, that's not something that we can shake a stick at. So it's like, you know, we have to sort of like ferret out. OK, so what is it that we're regretting about some of these uh, crime bill, some of the crime bills that he signed? I, I think what part of the regret, if I might be mistaken, Chris, you could probably speak to it better than I can, is that it seemed to be. Um, uh, aimed at 
the African American or um, people of color's community. Yeah, because, whether whether purposeful or not, it disproportionately affected Black folks and Latino folks. It definitely did, and that's because so many are already in the system. Once again, that's a conversation for a whole month worth of podcasts. So I don't want to dig too deep. Okay. Into that. But but let me just say on what, what you're saying. I see what you're doing. You're trying to be pra- pragmatic and be political. And like, if we could make a deal, well, yeah, I guess if we could make a deal, but it, I mean, it's just not enough of a change from the current three strike scenario to what you're proposing. I think it would be completely performative, but I understand where you're coming from. So yes, I understand what you're saying. I just don't think that change would be enough to do anything. Well, let me uh, bring in Yitzchak, and again, we appreciate you uh, talk, uh, in, in preparation to this podcast. You sent all of us a, um, a, a link to a case that I think is out of Arkansas, where we are seeing that um, the system is actually trying to ferret out some of the bad apples. Um, now, we talked today about the bad apples being the good old boys, being the lawyers and the judges. But I think, Yitzchok, I think your, your perspective is that maybe the system ain't as broke as Chris and David th- are, are saying it is, right, Yitzchok? I, 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 my, my perspective is that historically it, 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 it was and has been, and I still think the federal system needs to be fixed a lot, but that a, a, a case like this gives hope that things are being fixed things are changing it's you know people aren't getting away with what they used to and i saw the same thing you know in our you know much to our um to our shame you know in 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 our in our department not in my prison but there was you know it was in the news there was a co who encouraged an, an inmate to to uh to beat up uh, another inmate and he wound up killing him and uh, you know that was taken care of. They, right. they didn't sweep that under the rug. They into it. The guy's in trouble. The guy, the, even though he wasn't the one who did it, he just told him to do it. He's gonna. He's an inmate now, and and a CO being in prison. That's not a good place to be. To be, you know, we have a few former COs who are inmates. Oh, okay, it's a, it's a very dangerous. Yitzchak, I, I think it's look. Yitzchak, I think we all applaud the fact that that the COs um, have. Have to have to really uh, own up for their ugly behavior and for their criminal behavior. I think we're talking about before that. And, 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 we, and we don't. But I'm saying, and we don't stand for that. You know, meaning it's 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 the the department has changed, and all and it seems like throughout the country there has been this reform where they're like, there it's not how it was in the old days. People are okay uh, held responsible for their actions. Um, you know, so, if, so, if so, so, Chris, do you want to respond? Okay, you know, not being you know, Yitzchuk, you know, I, because the Ferris wheel and the cotton candy, so it's a pretty, we're getting a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, no background noise. Chris, Yitzchuk says that uh, Rabbi Kolakowski believes that maybe things are getting better and we should take a look at signs like uh, that's that, that, that uh, um, I don't know what he was. I think it was a Sergeant or something um, uh, being yeah. sentenced. We should see that the, we are looking, even the government itself is looking within itself to try to make changes. Do you think that that, how would you respond to that quickly, Chris? I, I want to think positive about it, but it's hard to, because you don't know what's going on, how rampant this is happening inside prisons. Now, when you're on the outside, everybody's got, a camera on their phones. They can film, you know, if there's a bad interaction with the police officer, it's going to be on YouTube and a million people are going to see it. In prison, this stuff happens all the time. There's no one there to record it. Feeding us one, I mean, maybe it's good. And I can put a positive spin. It's something. I'm not downgrading and saying, no, it's something, but it's going to be a lot more than one, a lot more than 20. It's going to be hundreds before I think, wow, we're really changing things now. Well, I I would hope I will Rabbi, I will tell you, on the other side of the coin, I know of a very, very recent case uh, in the Miami uh, Federal uh, Correctional Center, the federal MCC, where a fellow was being held, and they were virtually torturing him. They didn't give him toilet paper. The female guard, and he was a very good-looking fellow, the female guards were 
making him uh, allowing, they were making him have sex with them. Uh, they, they didn't let him take showers. They kept him in isolation. They didn't turn the lights off. Uh, they did all kinds of craziness to this guy. And it was very real. And there was nothing they could do about it. Um, uh, well, that sounds, it sounds... Just 30, some, 30 years ago, let's say, uh, the police story was really the only factual basis to arrive at a conclusion of the event. Whereas now there is other stories being told by these videos. So I think that, you know, good police management is probably and probably needs to take a long, hard look at what um, what they're training the police to do, how they're dealing with uh, the psychology of policing. Because, again, there is no more carte blanche for police officers. So. My my impression just from, you know, I mean, again, it's probably a hopeful, it's probably more a hope than, but I think that, you know, as this pendulum starts swinging, I think it will take corrections with it. Because, again, it's only, it's only right that, you know, whatever tools that are causing this correction in policing, and again, I will call it a correction because, you know, again, as I said, if it's only the police story and there is no other way to, uh, you know, to, to ferret out what really happened, quote unquote, then, you know, maybe something was missing. As I, you know, that one of the articles that we, uh, were, we were sharing amongst each other indicated that were it not for the cell phone video, um, George Floyd's death would have probably been chalked up to... Um, a medical condition that occurred during an arrest. Maybe this, this I think could be very easily dealt with what, what uh, Gershon was talking about that terrible case, of course. And, 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 you know, uh, the case that Yitzchuk mentioned out of Arkansas, uh, maybe there's, there's gotta be constant video from the moment the person is placed, you know, in, in jail, you know, waiting to go to prison. And there's always, the person can always demand video of that. And that evidence will always be there. Is that, is that already federally mandated that all, I mean, the same way we can talk about body cams, maybe this is something that can easily be um, uh, legislated. I I, I can speak of that when, when we, whenever an inmate is transported from one place to other, they, they have a camera there. It's they, they do record that. And there are cameras all over the prison, obviously also. So, they do go out of their way to record things to make sure that you know there there aren't any of these false allegations or if something is done that isn't supposed to be done there's a record of that they, they that's what i see every day you know if someone's being brought to the hole there's someone there following them with a the camera making sure that everything is recorded but but Yitzhak, at least where yes maybe it should be more than just the hole maybe it should be the, 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 the complete prison experience. There should be everything. Should there should be I and row, as we say in, in the mission and of us. There should yeah, there, be there are cameras everywhere. There are there are cameras everywhere. Uh-huh. So so there, the type. You know, but unfortunately, but unfortunately, uh, all of these all of these safety nets are only as good as their weakest link. And I'm just thinking of like Mr. Uh, Mr. Epstein, uh, Jeffrey Epstein. That is like listen. They knew he was on suicide watch. They had cameras going all the time. And yet, lo, lo and behold, somehow that camera wasn't working for 32 minutes. And that's all that they needed. So, you know, again, let it's me, only as good tell, as the weakest link. Let me tell you, gentlemen, a, a, a quick case that I had in Chicago. I had a client who was locked up in a uh, police lockup, not the county jail. He was just arrested for something. And the mother of this fellow contacted the commander and warned him that she had word that her son was talking about killing himself. So the lockup keeper who had uh, my client on on a television screen, uh, well, the bottom line is my client hung himself on television. Wow. And, and, and the police did not, uh, in, the, the COs did not uh, intercede at all? 
So somebody, uh, somebody dropped the ball. I mean, it's simple as that. Somebody dropped the ball. The officer was standing in front of a monitor, uh, three monitors. And one of the monitors uh, was connected to a camera that was focused on my client in the cell. He was warned. The officer was warned that this fellow may kill himself. He hung himself on television. Uh, is it possible, again, you know, Dan, you talked about, like, you know, Rosemary Woods or, you know, the, the tape somehow got missing. Isn't it possible to have a third party that's not the people who run the prison who are in charge of the cameras? Go ahead, Chris. Why not? No, that's the expansion of the police state by even giving more private industry foothold within the prison industrial complex. If you bring in a third party, you got to pay a third party. Plus, the biggest thing is I don't know um, where all these cameras were at when I was locked up. The county, I was on camera 24-7. Prison bus, no camera. Um, Vienna prison, no cameras, period. I was in classrooms with teachers, no camera. Uh, Jacksonville, no cameras. So, But then again, I've been out for more than 13 years, so I know things have changed. And I would like, I think that would be good, but you're taking away what little dignity the people in prison still hold on to. At least they can somehow find 20 minutes, 30 minutes of privacy a day to do non-mentionable things or stuff like that, that you don't want to be on camera. Give them a second, second of privacy. But I also understand what you're saying. You know, if there were cameras every single where, but cameras can tell two stories too. We've seen it as well. As divided as the country was over Derek Chauvin, I mean, the camera was telling two different stories to two different groups of people. I saw one story. I have good friends who saw a different story. They, they weren't racist. They weren't evil. They weren't, but they just didn't see what I saw. But they were looking at the same thing. And I'm so afraid with the tribalism and the vision we have in society right now, that's what cameras would do. One person would look at it and say, the, the CO did nothing wrong. The other person would be like, are you kidding me? The CO did this. And then we're taking that to trial and it's wasting time. And it just goes on and on and on. And that's already happening, actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, unfortunately, all the cell phone video is not really, it's just creating more noise because yes, it's, pro- it's providing a picture. And again, you'll notice that I was very circumspect in what I said about George Floyd is that, I didn't weigh in on what happened, but I'm just saying that the video provided a different perspective than the police would have said. And, you know, again, that, that's happening all the time. I, I don't know that I can, you know, I, I know that the jury weighed in on Derek Chauvin's actions and that's that. But it's like, uh, you know, that's not what other people are saying. I, I speak to the same acquaintances that, like Chris, have a totally different attitude. So, you know, that's absolutely already happening today, is that even seeing video sometimes does not necessarily uh, give you the answers that you seek. Well, but clearly it, it would be better to have them than to have the excesses that Gershon talked about, about prisoners that are tortured and, and, and grotesquely treated and, and beaten. Yes, you're right. He might not win based on the camera, but at least the camera is, a, is an option. So I don't see... Look, I, I work in a meat plant, you know, as, as a rabbi, making sure all the meat is kosher. Those cameras are on 24-7 all the time. Every, and, and to what you're saying, Chris, yeah, you're right. It, it, some of your private stuff is going to be on there, but this is for their benefit. It's for their, it's for their prisoners' benefit to make sure that if anything would happen that is untoward, they at least know that they have the cameras uh, to be able to, to, to back them up. It might not. It might be interpreted differently. But isn't it better that than nothing? Yitzchak, do you have something to say on this? Or, or are you on the Ferris wheel there? What's going on? A question. Uh, you, you're, how long have you been re- retired? Six years. Okay. How do you view? What is your opinion? What is your take? on the changes that are resulting from the fact that it's no longer just the police officer's statement of the fact, but now you have everybody taking video pictures every time there's an arrest or a stop or whatever. What, what do you, how do you feel about this? You were a captain in New York for many years, and you were there in the trenches, and now you see 
uh, a revolution or an evolution taking place? What's your reaction? What, what's your opinion? Okay, so again, I mean, there, there should be two main changes that are coming out of that, that revolution. And as I, I said, one of them, which is that police management needs to look long and hard at their training of police officers at their entry level uh, requirements for police officers, because again, it's a, it's a new ball game. So I think that, I think once we, once we eliminate some of the old guard police officers who do not, who remember what it was like before video, I think, you know, once we have a new, a new crop of police managers that, finally recognize that the world has changed permanently, I think, you know, we're we're not going to see as much change in police as we should. On the other hand, I think that what I'm also what I'm also noticing is that what's required from our legislatures is some some specific legal uh, regulations in regards to, you know, what civilians can and cannot do at a police at a at an emergency event, because I think that we're seeing we're seeing just absolute craziness of people actually becoming filmmakers in the middle of a uh, a serious crime, you know, a, a takedown of a criminal, of of other types of things. So there has to be some balance, because you know, again, all right, if they're if they're, if, if they're standing at a distance. And they are not physically interfering with the officers in in the performance of their duties. Do you object to that? Absolutely not. I do not object to that in any way. However, what I object Good. to is that you know is that if you are if you're too close, or even if even even the concept perhaps of failure to assist, because remember the police officer is is an agent of society. So if you're just there as a filmmaker while he's literally trying to bring someone under control, I mean, I'm starting to think that there might even be issues with that in terms of a failure to act. But I mean, again, that that too could probably be a whole a whole hour's worth of conversation. But no, I am not. I am not at all saying that people should not be allowed to film. I think that that is just our reality today. I recognize it. I accept it. However, I think that there is now, there has to be a balance or a rebalancing on both sides of this equation, given the revolution that you asked me about. Thanks a lot. That's that's great. Chris? And the police, we can also try to get out of this prison industrial complex where we let privateers come in and profit off of it. Not private prisons, but Aramark tablets, $5 phone calls, $5 emails, get rid of them. And there's just so many things we can do, is, but I think we really need to work towards the eventual goal of living in a society that's not so punitive, or maybe we don't need prisons. I don't intend to live in that society. I'll be long gone when it comes. And that's why I didn't speak on it so much tonight, because we're trying to be pragmatic, think realistic right. things that could help. So I really think this is one step in the right direction. Thank you, Chris. And that's exactly the spirit uh, that we wanted to to elicit. And I think even if what we said was in a certain sense, me being educated about things I didn't know, but I think as I, as I've said to all of you in in, in a private manner, the fact that we can all talk from different perspectives and, and be respectful, understand that our own personal histories are going to impact the way we view things and yet respect where, what other positions are and hearing possibilities. I think it's a model for, working together and working together uh, towards, uh, you know, change that, look, look, I can see, again, I could see it happening very soon, just like body cams became, we could talk about cameras everywhere. We can talk about definitely, you know, things, uh, other things you mentioned about three strikes. I even would say to Gershon's point, you know, we could even legislate uh, fees on lawyers which would deal with David's point. If, if lawyers realized that there was only a certain amount they could get from each case, then there would be less of them extracting huge amounts of money for for people. If they were legally bound, then they, they, they could put caps about how much they could charge. 
I don't think that 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 doesn't sound terrible to me. It doesn't sound like we're killing free enterprise. I mean, these guys are not going to go. These guys are they might lose a house in Malibu or or a club med vacation or two. But I think it would it, it, it would serve the public good in terms of. This is the limit. This is what my cap is. We did it in the insurance. This is, isn't that what happened with Obamacare and private insurance? Isn't there also limitations? Why can't there be a similar type of legislation dealing with criminal defense systems? Uh, people who need insurance are desperate. They shouldn't have to pay out of uh, out of the box costs. Why can't David's point also be that? Okay, you want to take a private lawyer? Try it, but he has to know, and he's going to be more honest with you when he realizes he can't just bilk you all the way. Now, I know I just threw something out that I didn't say earlier. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.